Okay, we're going to uh, let the children be dismissed for a junior church. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, <clears throat> chapter 18. Matthew, chapter 18, is where I'd like us to begin this morning. Verse 21. The Word of God says this. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, what's happening? Okay, Peter raises a topic that he is looking at from a very earthly or worldly perspective. Very pragmatic approach. Jesus is going to respond to that question for information from the heavenly perspective. Okay, and what the purpose of all of the parables in the New Testament are to show us or to give us a clearer view of a heavenly truth. Okay, so in this case, the parable has as its purpose to reveal the heart of God, to behold the heart of God towards brokenness that is so prevalent in our world. I think one of the things that all of us realize is this. We live in a world that at many levels is messed up. There's a lot of brokenness. Okay, we talked the last five weeks about the story of Jonah and about the brokenness that was present, not only in Jonah's life as a man of God, but also the brokenness that was present in the city of Nineveh. A lot of wounds and a lot of injuries are, in a sense, rehearsed as you move through the book. As you go through the book, you see Jonah in his rebellion. You see Jonah receiving grace. You see Jonah proclaiming the gospel. And then you see Jonah hating that grace. You see all of these offenses. The offenses of Nineveh against the people of Israel. Jonah taking that personally. Okay, and so there's this struggle that emerges in the book of Jonah, this theme of forgiveness. And that's why I want to move into a two-week discussion on the topic of forgiveness, because at the heart of the book of Jonah is the last verse where God says to Jonah, Jonah, shouldn't I be merciful to this great city? Shouldn't I demonstrate grace and love and forgiveness just like you received, Jonah? Isn't that what I should do? And so this morning, I want to begin by simply acknowledging something that I believe is, is very important for us to realize. If there are passages in Scripture as frequently as there are passages like this that deal with forgiveness, then that means something. Okay, that means that there is an issue that God anticipated and addressed in His written Word for our benefit and help. Okay, and I think this is why God gave this text and many others like it. All of us give and receive offenses because everyone in this room is fallen. All of us live in broken marriages. Okay, all of us live in broken, imperfect homes. All of us go to a workplace that is not like heaven. Okay, all of us. We all are offended. We all give offense. We have all been hurt. And all of us have hurt. Okay, and I think it's important that when we look at the hurts that we have received and we think about how do I respond to those things, look at Jonah's story. Okay, and then look at your own story. Wounded and wounding, hurt and hurting, offended and offending. Okay, none of us are immune to or free from that struggle. 
And in his mercy, what does God do? He, he dedicates pages of truth to addressing that predominant issue of pain and brokenness in a hurt and hurting world. The question that, that, that in a sense, raises this parable that Jesus is going to give is a question that comes from Peter, a man that we know struggled deeply, a man who also was willing to acknowledge his sinfulness. He knew he was a broken man. And so as he comes to Christ, he knows that he has wounded others and that he himself has been wounded. And so he asked this question, an inquiry in verse 21, to answer the question, how should we respond to the offenses that we receive? How do we deal with that? Peter's inquiry, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And notice the context is within the realm of Christian community. There is an assumption in this text that the teaching here is for believers. Why? Because if you have not received forgiveness, it is incredibly difficult to practice this kind of grace that is talked about here. If you haven't experienced this kind of grace, this text is going to be totally offensive to you. It is not going to be attractive. It's not going to be appealing. You're not going to look at it and say, you know what? I can't wait to live like that. You're going to say, I don't in my flesh have any desire to live like that. All right, this requires the hand and touch of God. How should we respond? So Peter's question comes with an anticipated response from himself. He says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, but Peter, 77 times. Now, if you go back and study rabbinic literature in this era, you'll find that the respectable amount of forgiveness, it came up to three times. If people offended you and you forgave them on three different occasions, then you, in the way of the teaching of the religious leaders of the day, you had a right to no longer give forgiveness to them. You had, in a sense, met your quota. Peter grabs the number of perfection from the Old Testament here, the number seven, and says, Lord, is it okay if I forgive seven times? Now, in a sense, what is Peter saying? He's saying, I am giving a gracious extension to the norm of the day. So I realize I'm within the context of brothers and sisters, God's community, and there perhaps we should take it up a notch. A gracious extension would be appropriate. What is he asking? What is Peter really asking? What is the appropriate limit on forgiveness or grace? How far should it go? That, not, not how far does it go, how far should it go? What would be reasonable and respectable? Jesus' reply is stunning. He says 77 times, the New American Standard, I think, in the King James says 70 times 7. Okay, and there's debates over that based on some of the numbers and the issues that are present here. Should I forgive 77 times? Or Jesus says no, at least 77 times. Okay, and here's what I can tell you. Okay, the minimum translation out of this text is 77 times. The maximum is 490. What's the intention here? And the, the rabbis counted, right? One, two, three strikes and what? You're out. Okay, Peter ups it and says, what if we count to seven? What is Jesus' reply saying to Peter? You know, he's saying, Peter, put away your calculator. When you look at God's grace, God doesn't count. 
He doesn't count the number of offenses that we have against him and determine whether or not he should forgive us. When we come with a broken and repentant heart, what does he do? He forgives with limitless grace. And so David in the Old Testament could say, Lord, if you kept account of iniquity, Psalm 103, who could stand? Lord, if you, if you keep a record, who will be able to stand before you and be declared righteous? And the answer is absolutely no one. Now, this 77 times is a fascinating statement because it draws out of Genesis chapter 4. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain kills his brother. God graciously allows Cain to live even though he should die as the penalty for his crime. Lamech is a future relative of Adam. And Lamech makes this bold proclamation. He, he, he brags about killing someone for rebuking him. And here's what he says. He says, if someone tries to avenge me, they try to bring punishment that I deserve. Cain was seven times, he says, if they try to me, vengeance will come down on their heads 77 times. Okay, and I believe that helps me to understand what's going on in Matthew, or in Matthew chapter 18. Okay, what is, what is Lamech saying? Lamech is saying, I will rain down unlimited vengeance upon people who offend me. You know what Jesus is saying to Peter and to the disciples? He's saying, we as believers should be people that rain down unlimited vengeance grace upon people to the same degree that we live in a world that is tends to be bitter and unforgiving and judgmental and wants to see people get theirs christians should be people who rain down amazing unlimited uncalculating grace see that's the that's the thrust of where this is going so the teaching of jesus the response of jesus to peter very simply is this peter don't count. Jesus, number one, encourages long, unlimited forgiveness and grace. Okay? Now, he's a realist. How do you know that? Because in the previous paragraph, he dealt with offenses that arise in the context of our lives. With a brother or sister in Christ. With a family member. He tells us that's going to happen. Here's how to deal with them when it happens. When there is repentance, the forgiveness that we give is to be unlimited and uncalculating. So Jesus encourages long, limitless forgiveness. I think what Jesus is saying is this. Do not calculate. The key in this issue is the heart. Now, verse 23, he goes into an illustration to help us to understand this depth of forgiveness. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. As he began to the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant, seeing his desperate situation, fell on his knees before him. Be patient, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Okay? So, first part of the parable. A king is settling accounts with his servant. It is, it is a man who, in his context, would be dictatorial. He would be without restrictions. Okay? He is the final authority. That's the way kings functioned in the ancient world. He comes to a day of reckoning. He is exercising his authority to call in all accounts. He, 
He wants to assess where things stand financially in his kingdom. Enter a servant, a manager, a steward of a large portion of his estate who would presumably be a very wealthy man. Look, to, to incur this kind of debt with his master, okay, he would have to be a man who had a very large sphere of responsibility. And he is a man who has failed in large and catastrophic ways. That becomes very evident as you work through this. He is a manager with a large debt. Now, in the text, it says this. It says that he owed him 10,000 talents. Okay? Now, you and I and our language never talk that way. Okay? We don't say, well, I owe you 10 talents or 2 talents. So the question becomes, what, what is this number? Okay, and I'm going to tell you there's a little bit of debate over this. But perhaps I think the best explanation of what's going on here is this. This, this man owes him 10,000 talents. Okay, a talent was the largest denomination or bill that was made at that time. Okay, that was the, the largest. So we talk about millions, billions, trillions, and I don't know what number is beyond trillions. Okay, but we, so in our, in our vernacular, trillion is probably the biggest number that we would use to describe a large sum of money. Okay, and then, so that's the denomination. The 10,000 is, is, is the largest, if you will say, the largest number. So you have this largest denomination of bills. He owes 10,000 of whatever the biggest number is. Okay, now what does that tell you? It's a lot, okay? If you go to the book of Revelation, what does it say? Before the throne, there are myriads upon myriads of what? Angels, right? What's the word? God doesn't say, hey, when you get there, you verify it. Okay, when you get up to heaven, count it out and make sure I had the number. No, what is it? It is limitless. It is glorious. And in this case, the man's debt, it, it, it can't be counted. It's, most estimates run millions to billions. Okay, but in either case, if you're absolutely broke, how capable are you going to be of paying off that kind of debt? Okay, and I think the answer is relatively obvious. Okay, the master calls him in, and verse 25, since he's unable to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and everything that he has be sold to repay the debt. So what is the master doing? The master's first response is to apply the strict interpretation of the law. Okay, the strict interpretation said this. If someone is unable to pay their debt, in that time, all of his assets could be liquidated and his whole family could be sold as slaves. Okay, that was the way that things could be dealt with then. Now, this is a man who has lived with status. This administrator, this manager, has status. He has been responsible for large amounts of money. This thought breaks his heart. What's going to happen to his family being torn apart is breaking his heart. So what does he do? He falls on his face and he, he begs this man to be patient with him. And I will pay back everything. Okay, now, what's your response to that? Okay, the debt you owe is insurmountable and unpayable. You can't even count it. And this guy says, if you're merciful to me, I'll pay everything back. Now, where's, where's this guy coming from? He's coming out of desperation. Okay? He's coming out of complete brokenness. 
If you're familiar with uh, bankruptcy laws in the United States, you know there's two kinds of bankruptcy. One is Chapter 11. Okay, Chapter 11 means there is still hope that if this individual is given protection from the creditors, they can dig themselves out of this hole. Okay, they can earn enough money to pay off the debt. There's hope for rehabilitation, okay? So chapter 11 would be, I, I can get my act together. My doubt is, my debt is not insurmountable, okay? The other kind of bankruptcy that you can file for in America is chapter 7, okay? What chapter 7 means is this. It means a complete liquidation of a person's assets. It means that their debt, the mountain of debt that they have accumulated, is insurmountable. They'll never get out from under it. And so what happens? Their debt is trashed and destroyed. Everything they own is liquidated to remove that debt. Okay? So this man's position is that he's declaring, ultimately, chapter 7. But with a hint of chapter 11, because that's the way we all are, isn't it? We all think that our, our spiritual debts before God are surmountable, even though they are actually insurmountable. What I love in the story is this. The king doesn't rebuke the man for his desire, earnest as it may be, to pay off the debt. He knows he can't pay it. So what does he do? Okay, and this is the the shocking turn in the ancient world. This is the unexpected twist. Verse 27. It says, The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Okay, and this is a beautiful picture of forgiveness. Okay, the king looked at this broken man weeping. He had pity on him. Fascinating word, Matthew chapter 9, verse 26. When Jesus looked at the crowds, the multitudes, what did he feel? He felt compassion. They were like sheep without a shepherd. This king who has absolute authority, and typically kings didn't really care about people in that time. If you study the lives of the kings at the time of Christ, you will find that they were typically ruthless men. They discarded people like you and I would throw stones out of the garden. They did not care about people. So this this king is different. Why? Because he's picturing the king of kings. He's giving us an understanding of what God is like. And the servants in the story are the people of God who have been in this powerful and amazing relationship with him. The king takes pity in response to repentance. The man truly admits his wrong. He forgave him. Costly grace is what we're talking about here. And folks, please understand this. When we talk about limitless grace, we're not talking about cheap, inexpensive grace. Okay, every time someone is forgiven, somebody's giving up some kind of a right. In the realm of finances, whenever there's forgiveness of a debt, somebody lost something. When one person declares chapter 7 and another company erases that debt from the book, that company absorbed the debt. Okay, and every time someone offends you and you reach out to them in the grace of God and forgive them, you have to be willing to absorb the wrong that you have received without retaliating and fighting back. And that's why we struggle with forgiveness. It means if I'm going to forgive my brother who has offended me, not only seven times, 77, unlimited, it, sometimes life is going to be difficult. Sometimes it's going to be painful to practice that kind of grace. Why? We live in an offended and offending world. We all hurt and we all at times become hurt. Okay, and so we, we wrestle with this, 
this kind of tension. And, and, and I hope you can make the connection back to the story of Jonah. Israel had been hurt. Jonah's people had been hurt. God says, Jonah, go preach grace to the people that hurt you. Go preach forgiveness to them. And God forgives them. And what, what happens? Jonah just, he, 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 can't, he can't comprehend. He can't appreciate that kind of grace. Yet he should. Because it's exactly what God had done to him in chapter 2, right? He had rescued him from the edge of death. So the end of the story in the first part is, the king let him go. Folks, think about this. This guy has an insurmountable debt. He falls before the king, completely humbles himself. The king looks at him and for some reason feels compassion, eliminates the debt. That is, he says, I'll absorb that. And he lets him go. Okay, and the idea is that, that he now is going with, with no sense of owing anything except what? What does he owe that king? Gratitude. Okay? Same thing you say to your kids at Christmas time. They get their gift, they get consumed in their gift, and you stop them. Why? Hey, 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 wait, 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 wait. Put that down. Go say thank you. Okay? Why? You just received a gift. You didn't pay for that. But that gift wasn't free. Okay? Hopefully your relatives didn't go and shoplift that gift. Okay? They paid for that gift. And why do we say thank you for gifts? Because there's an implication that there's some kind of a cost. Okay? Gratitude should rule the hearts of the forgiven. Okay? Gratitude should dominate the hearts of the forgiven. That's the response of Jesus to Peter. Peter, why are you asking? If you have received grace, that kind of grace should be overwhelming your heart. Now, the shocking twist in the story comes next. The Bible says that this man who had been been forgiven this just incredible debt, when he went out, and the implication seems to be that this is almost an immediate encounter that he has, okay? So tears are drying on his face, tears of gratitude. And then he sees someone who has wounded him deeply and personally. Not nearly as deeply as he wounded the king. But someone who had offended him, who, had, who owes him. And what does he do? This is most fascinating. And, and this is, Jesus is speaking in a sense, if you will, in terms of exaggeration with the numbers and with the responses of people here to paint a picture of God as the King of kings and Lord of lords. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, verse 28, who owed him a hundred denarii, which about is two months or three months worth of wages. Okay, approximately. I think the thrust here is that what he owes in no way compares to what this man has just been forgiven. He found him and he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay what you owe me, he demanded. Give me what you owe me. Okay? He, he is demanding. He is holding this man hostage. But he refused. I'm sorry, verse 29. His servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. Same words as above. And I will pay you back. Exactly. Exactly what this man had said to the king. But he refused. That is, this man, manager, who has been forgiven, refused to demonstrate any kind of grace. Instead, he went off, 
had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Okay, what did he do? He exacted justice. Okay, do you hear all the motorcycles going by if you're wondering what that is? You guys hear that noise? Okay, I think it's, uh, I forget, there's some kind of a ride thing going on out there. So if that's distracting you, it's distracting me also. Okay, I'm hearing that. I'm like, what is that? That's, that's big thunder, okay? Okay, so he, he, it, it, it's just shocking that he would, he would grab this man and hold him accountable for a debt that is totally insignificant compared to what he's been forgiven. Now, notice the response of the watching world. Okay, notice how they respond. Verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. Which means what? They were stunned. They were shocked at this servant's response to this need. What are they thinking? You were just forgiven and insurmountable. You declare chapter 7. He needs to declare chapter 11. He can get out of this. And you're going to throw him into prison and make him pay for what he's done. Because you have forgotten the grace that you've received. They're stunned. And you know what they do? They look at this and they say, we're going to tell the boss. We're not putting, we are not going to let you get away with this. And what do they, do? they go to the king. Why? They have a serious complaint. There is something out of line in this guy's life. He's out of control. He has experienced grace, but is unwilling to show it. He doesn't appreciate what you did for him. And what is their, what are they thinking? Oh, the king's going to say so. No, that's not what they're thinking. What they're thinking is that when the king hears this, he will be equally shocked by the level and degree of ingratitude. And will do something about it. You know what they're thinking? There needs to be justice in this regard. If someone treats grace like this, the king cannot let it go. Okay, and it's, just a, it's a fascinating story. Lack of grace in this account leaves this man angry, tormented, demanding, critical, and blind to the blessings in his life. Folks, that's what unforgiveness always does. It leaves you tormented. It leaves you angry. Look, here's something. We, we can't say that this forgiven man is still happy about his forgiveness. You, there's no way you could read this story and say, you know what, I bet his disposition, as he talks to that guy, he has a big smile on his face. No, you, he, he has been overcome by this lesser issue, and it is blinding him to the greater issue of the favor and forgiveness and freedom that he received. He's absolutely blind to it. Now, let me just draw three principles out of this story. Number one is this. God's forgiveness is shocking and radical. And mine should be too. Okay, God's forgiveness is shocking and radical. When this man walks out from the king and all of his friends see him still going free, they have to be stunned. Why? He owed so much. It was unlikely that the king would forgive him. In fact, the king's plan was to sell him, his family, and put him in jail, liquidate everything in his life, and hold him hostage. That's what he deserved. And all he did was say, he begged for mercy. And the king says, you know what? I'm going to forgive you. Not because it was deserved, but because it was desperately needed. The extent of God's shocking grace in this story is, it's dramatic, but... Is it overstated? 
Okay, now I told you Jesus is exaggerating in this story to give you an understanding of what God is like. Okay, here's my question to you. Does this story overstate the grace of God? Okay, it's certainly over. No one could owe this much money. Okay, it's too, it's uncountable. But is the grace of God overstated in this story? Or is it amazing grace? Do you see? Folks, listen. If, if the grace of God isn't amazing you, if it isn't on a regular basis shocking to you, in a sense even disturbing, because this is what happens in the book of Jonah, isn't it? That Jonah could be forgiven, that was understandable. But that Nineveh could be forgiven, unacceptable. Right? Because his own grace did not shock him. Here's what happens. People offend us, hurt us, abuse us in our lives. Okay? And we forget the grace that we have received. And what do we do? We hold people by the throat relationally. We hold them at a distance. We give them the silent treatment. We talk about them to injure and wound them and destroy their reputation. Meaning we're getting ours back. We're making them pay. Because we have forgotten that the grace that we have received... Look, one day in your past or somewhere along the way in your Christian life, God's grace has shocked you. If you've trusted Christ, I guarantee you there have been times along the way when you have been amazed that God would forgive you again. Okay, and that's the purpose of the story is to show that's what God's grace is like. It is, however, a costly grace. To the king, the debt that he forgave was enormous. It was large. <clears throat> 1 Peter 2 helps us to capture the size of this debt that God paid for us to forgive us of our sins. The cost that Jesus himself bore, 1 Peter 2 verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For, Peter says, by his wounds you have been healed. Folks, our forgiveness came at what price? At the price of the beating of the body of Christ, of the shedding of the blood of Christ, He gave Himself, why? To bear our sins. 1 Peter 1.17 Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Why? And I want to make this connection at the end. For you know that it was not with perishable things, impoverished things like silver and gold, that you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without defect and spot. Okay, what is the cost of our forgiveness, That this forgiveness that shocks us? What is the cost? It is the perfect blood of Christ. He set aside all of the riches of heaven, took on the poverty of earth. And so Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 9, he would say, he said, he himself became poor so that we might become rich. What does that mean? It means that Jesus took the price of my sin, the cost, and blotted my record clean. A couple weeks ago, I was at a diner with a friend of mine up in Route 46 and 519. And the man that runs the business across the street, Stanley's Marina, saw that I was over there with a friend of mine. He called the restaurant and had our bill paid. Okay, he took care of it. I get up. I don't know any of this has happened. I get up. I go to the cash register. I'm trying to pay my bill. 
The lady says, you can go. I said, well, I owe, I owe you. I have, by eating your food, and I can eat a substantial amount of food, I have incurred debt. I owe you. Here's what she said. She said, somebody already paid it. Now, what did that mean? Did it mean that, and here's what she said, breakfast was free. I said, no, it's not free. Right? But what was she saying? But it is. How? Because somebody paid. Folks, that's the grace of God that should shock it. The reason we have the hope of heaven is not because we're good people. We're excellent people. No, it's because we have been forgiven. Somebody paid and our grace that comes to us, it really is free, but it doesn't mean it's without cost. And I just, I want to encourage you, remember that. This man is forgiven in this story, but guess what? He thinks it was free. He thinks it wasn't costly. And so there's no appreciation and no gratitude flowing out of his life. Forgiveness always implies cost because the implication of the basic word, me for forgiveness is to wipe out a debt. That's what it means, to release. It's exactly what this king did for this servant. He had compassion, he forgave his debt, and he set him free. There's a three-step process. Jesus felt compassion for you. He came and paid the debt of your sin. And when you trust him for forgiveness, what happens? You are really and truly totally free, even though you may struggle with that kind of grace and think that you have to earn his favor sometimes. The truth is you don't. Because he really paid the price. And it really is free. And that should shock us. Verse 28 through 30, this man, when he goes out, tells me that we tend to be, and this is number three, we tend to be far less merciful to others than God is to us. We have a tendency, folks. We have a tendency to not want to forgive people. And our, God's tendency to forgive far exceeds my tendency to forgive. Okay, and the purpose for God's forgiveness is what? It's to teach us. It's to teach us to be forgiving. Why did God forgive this man so much? So that he would have a different life and so that he would go out and communicate the grace of the king to others. See, in a sense, what happens in this story, this man's response to the king's grace and failure to imitate it is not primarily an offense against this man that owes him. It's an offense against the king that forgave him. Isn't it? I for, and what's the king going to say? Notice what he says. After the other servants came and told them everything that happened, in their total shock, verse 32, then the master called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant, you ungrateful servant, I canceled all your debt because you begged me to. Should, shouldn't you have mercy on this fellow servant just as I had on you? What's the, what comes out of that? The king is assuming that someone who has been forgiven that much is going to what? You can go out and forgive other people. That's the way you represent a king in his kingdom. You act like him. And this man's response is, is stunning and shocking. Can we be honest this morning and say that we tend to congratulate ourselves for not being like this guy? Most of us tend to think we are pretty forgiving. But God doesn't call us to be pretty forgiving. God just calls us to be forgiving. And I think we need to challenge ourselves and ask ourselves, am I that forgiving? God's grace 
the Bible says, is meant to instruct us. So Ephesians 4.32, what does Paul say? Paul says, be kind and compassionate to each other. Okay, Paul, how do I reveal that? Forgive each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. Represent God's grace to one another. Practice God's grace to one another, which is to say what? The grace that we receive from God is meant to teach us and instruct us in how we should handle conflict in our personal lives. It doesn't come merely for our benefit. It comes so that we may learn it and practice it and in doing that, glorify God in such powerful ways. This grace, this forgiveness that God sends to instruct us comes to us on a daily basis. It is needed by us on a daily basis. We often forget that we need it on a daily basis. We tend to think people need that at the point of salvation, but as they get down the road, they become less needy of it. I quote for you Lamentations 3, verse 23. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. What does that say? I think it means something. Can I just be simple? I think it means I need it every day. I... I have a tendency to not love my wife like I should. I have a tendency to to want to manage situations rather than love people. We all have our tendencies. His mercies are new every morning because we need it every day of our lives. So the grace that starts us into this relationship with Christ, forgiven by the King of Kings, should govern our lives. And as we understand it and appreciate our need for it, what happens? We, We learn This grace is a school of instruction to create what? More gracious people like the king. That's the purpose. That's how we go out into our world and make a difference in our families. It's how we make a difference in our workplace. Respond different to offenses and watch the audience that you receive. Love people that don't deserve to be loved. It's easy to love people that deserve it, but don't think that that is grace. That's a response. Grace is giving to people what they don't deserve. We tend to be less merciful than God is, but we need to learn from his grace. The last thought I leave you with this morning is failure to appreciate and imitate God's grace is simply wrong. Failure to appreciate and imitate God's grace is just simply wrong. And I changed the word this morning in my notes from the word dangerous. Ingratitude. Failure to appreciate and imitate God's grace is dangerous. Now you may say to me, Tim, why? Because when I look at verse 34, and then I read the interpretation of in verse 35, this stands me up. It says, in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay the debt back. Or until, I'm sorry, until he should pay back all that he owed. And Jesus then says this. This is how my father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Okay, now that, okay, I'm raising all kinds of questions for you. Okay, that text is meant to shock you. And I think this text, this is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from the heart, I think is meant to say, Something like this. If someone claims to be a true disciple of Christ, but habitually refuses to practice forgiveness, 
then they need to ask themselves, am I really a disciple of Christ? Okay? I think it's raising the question, if someone says, I am genuinely converted, but I have no desire to express grace towards needy people, then I need to examine my conversion. I need to say, have I truly been changed at the heart? Because if you are truly converted, God's grace is going to be getting your attention at some level. It is going to, in a sense, define who you are. The Amish people in 2006 in Nichols Mines, in that horrendous and incredible tragedy when a number of young schoolgirls were killed by a single shooter, grabbed the attention of the world with something that came, became known as Amish grace. A grace that was difficult for the watching world to get their arms around. And so what happened? Reporters and investigators were sent in to, to get their arms around what was going on here. What captured their attention? Two things primarily. The fact that the Amish people went to the family of the killer and expressed grace. 50% of the people at the funeral for the killer were Amish. And they designated large portions of the charity trust to the family of the killer. And that, that stunned a watching world. Why? Because that's a level of grace that is irritating. It's, it's troubling. It's, it's hard to describe. It's hard to get your arms around. But it's the kind of grace, folks, that God has shown to us. A reporter went, and when they came back, they were asked these questions. What did you learn about the Amish understanding and practice of forgiveness while you were writing this book? He said, one of the main things I learned was how central forgiveness is to Amish theology and really to their whole values system. They believe in a real sense, and this is the statement that just grabs verse 35. They believe in a real sense that God's forgiveness of them is dependent upon their extending forgiveness to other people. Okay, folks, here's what I think Jesus is saying. Practicing forgiveness is evidence of having received it. Forgiving people forgive. People that know they're loved by God do what? They love. If you find yourself struggling with forgiving, you need to go to God and remind yourself of how much you have been forgiven. Go to that school of grace and let it teach you. Now, as I look at that story, here's what I believe the Bible is saying. One of the fundamental truths of biblical Christianity is being forgiven and forgiving. Okay, I believe that is bedrock to what it is to be a Christian. To be forgiven, and I think based on the words of Christ, to be forgiving. And I think what Jesus is saying this, it is not simply enough to be forgiven. Okay? You must also be forgiving. Because being forgiving evidences the truth of this claim to having been forgiven. Okay? Now, I use the word when I describe the Amish understanding of this, I use the word, it's a fundamental. Okay? How does your world feel about fundamentalist? How many of you hear the word fundamentalist used in positive ways? Okay, I remember in the 1990s, I was taking a, a class at a university in Chicago. And a research was being done at one of the local universities about the word fundamentalist. Okay, and the research was being done because of what? Because of the rise of Al-Qaeda and a lot of terroristic issues that were coming against America. So the thought was this. If people are fundamentalists, they are dangerous. Okay? 
They're dangerous. But should I be afraid of every fundamentalist? Okay, how do you answer that question? Answer the question by saying, it depends what their fundamental beliefs are. Then I know whether I should be afraid of them. Okay, how many of you have ever driven through Lancaster and said, I am really afraid of these people? Okay, I'm going to tell you something. If your car was going to break down, where do you want it to break down? And think about it. Okay, think about it. So all, okay, I'm a dad with three daughters that drive. Okay, now, seriously, the thing that really scares me is not that they're going to do something foolish and get in an accident. I mean that, okay? It does trouble me at times, but it's not the, the, the predominant thought in my mind is, if that car breaks down, will they be okay? Okay, that's what drives me. And if, if they broke down in Lancaster and called me, I'd you know, say, and out in the country now, there's people riding around in horse and buggies. I would say, get in the car, lock the doors. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't say that. I'd say, walk right up to them. Why? Because they have a fundamental. You know what their fundamental is? Grace received is grace given. That forgiveness received means be forgiving. It's a fundamental. Folks, is forgiveness for you a fundamental? Is it a fundamental? Is it the ground of your Christian experience? Is it what gets you up in the morning? Is it what drives you through the day? Is it how you respond to people that hurt you and wound you? Because you live in a hurt and broken world. Here's what happens. The fundamentalists that are dangerous are people that are ticked off about the injuries that they feel that they have received. And that lack of forgiveness leads to bitterness, and that bitterness makes them dangerous. So there is a kind of fundamentalism that you should fear. And there's a kind that you should embrace. Okay, if you lack forgiveness in your life, I'm going to tell you what it's going to do. It's going to make you dangerous and worthy of fear. That's what happened to this man. He forgot everything he had received. And he became an unbearable man. And the watching world looked and said, that's not right. But when we look at Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and his payment for our sin, being tormented on the cross, what does he say? Father, why? Because that was his fundamental. It was his fundamental. He came to seek and to save that which was lost by bearing the price of their sin and forgiving them, by wiping out their penalty and setting them free. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, let me just say this to you. And, and it, seriously, if you are in a trap of bitterness and unforgiveness, you say, Tim, I can't break out of it. It's just my mode of operation. Then I encourage you this morning, even if in the past at some time you went to Christ and you said, Lord, forgive me. I'm going to encourage you to do this. If you lack evidence of a desire to forgive, this text, I think, calls you to examine your faith in Christ. And my encouragement to you this morning is go to the cross and appreciate the grace and forgiveness of God. Receive it in a fresh way today and let God change your heart let him save you and forgive you that's what he wants to do and if you know christ i hope you can read this story and maybe you need to say to god god because of living in a hurt and hurting world because of having offended and 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 being offended i have changed and i'm not loving people like i should maybe you need to go to god this morning and say god amaze me stun me by your grace and change me make one of my fundamentals that I am a forgiving person who has been forgiven.
Father, we thank you for your word this morning.